Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 6, 2017, and my guest is author and blogger Andrew Gelman, professor of statistics and political science at Columbia University. Uh, Andrew's a very dangerous man for me. As listeners know, I've been increasingly skeptical over the years about the reliability of various types of statistical analyses in psychology, economics, epidemiology. And coming across your work, Andrew, uh, which I've done lately and been reading your blog, uh, you've confirmed a lot of my biases, which is always a little bit dangerous, but in such an interesting way. So I'm I'm hoping to learn a lot uh, in this conversation along with our listeners, and at the end, we'll talk about whether I've uh, gone too far and become too comfortable. So I want to start with something uh, very – and the other point I want to make before we start is that uh, it's sometimes hard to talk about statistics and data over the phone, and in a podcast, we're going to do the best we can without a, a whiteboard. Uh, but I'm hoping that both beginners and sophisticated users of statistics will find things of interest in our conversation. So we start though, with something very basic, which is uh, statistical significance. And we're going to wonder about statistical significance in small samples. But let's just start with the definition. When economists or psychologists say this result is statistically significant, what do they usually have in mind? Statistically significant means you observe a pattern in data, which if there was actually nothing going on and the data were just noise, the probability of seeing a pattern at least that extreme is less than 1 in 20. And that 1 in 20, so it's it's almost surely 95% of the time not due to the randomness of the noise. That's an arbitrary cut point that has somehow emerged as a norm in, in published academic research, correct? Correct, but you, you stated it a little wrong. I mean, one of the challenges of statistical significance is it kind of answers the wrong question. And one reason, one way to see that is that when people define it, they tend to get the definition garbled. In fact, I have a published article in which the, I think it's either the first or second sentence completely garbles the definition of statistical significance. That was our article about the Garden of Forking Paths. Okay, we're in good. Um, com- I'm in good company. You're talking. I, yeah, I blame the I blame the editor of the magazine <laughs> because they edited the thing, and of course, it's certainly not my responsibility what comes out under my name. I don't, ah, I don't no. think I should ever take responsibility no, for that. Absolutely not. So, statistical significance does not say that your result is almost certainly not due to noise. It says. If there was nothing going on but noise, then the chance is only 1 in 20 that you'd see something as extreme or greater. And it's typically illustrated in textbooks with examples of coin flipping. Um, like if you flip a coin 100 times, it's very unlikely that you'd see more than 60 heads or more than 60 tails. So if you saw that, you'd say, well, this is kind of odd. Um, it doesn't seem consistent with my model of in which nothing's going on. Well, in that case, you you presume your model is is, it, is that it is a fair coin with a fifty percent chance of a heads and a fifty percent chance of tails. So, if you consistently got seventy or eighty or ninety, you'd start to wonder whether your uh, model was of your assumption was correct. But uh, if correct me if I'm wrong, one in twenty times you will get more than sixty heads. So that if that might just happen to be one of the times that that happens, that will happen actually 5% of the time is what you're saying, correct? Yeah, I, it's not literally 1 in 20 that you'll get more than 60 because well, those numbers are just point. approximate. Oh, sorry. Right. There's, no, no, I was just pulling it out. I mean, there's some cut point. And exactly. Yeah. But, right. So if you're living in a world in which sometimes you have random number generators and you're trying to say, are the results consistent with a certain random number generator, then the statistical significance test um, is doing that for you. Um, but, but that's not how we use it in, in empirical work. So 
your definition your your more accurate definition than mine was was I think had a, at least two negatives. So I was somewhat confused by it, even as someone who's written papers with statistically significant results. I think um, so. Let's let's go back to that more accurate definition. I run some analysis. I run an experiment. I have a hypothesis about what I'm going to find. I may come to that hypothesis after the fact. We'll, we'll come to that later. But I have some in my published paper. I have a result, and it says that this claim about this, say, difference or impact of some variable on something we care about, a public policy change, might be the minimum wage, it might be immigration, it might be male-female differences, this difference or this effect is statistically significant. And when people write that in published work, what do they have in mind? What they're saying, should I give an example? Yeah, sure. So a few years ago, some economists did a study of early childhood intervention in Jamaica. And about 25 years ago, they went, they gathered about, I think it was 134-year-olds in Jamaica, and they divided them into a treatment group and a control group. And the treatment group, they, the control group, they did some helpful things for the kids' families. The control group, the treatment group, sorry, they had an a fairly intense one-year intervention with, with the parent. Then they followed up the kids. 20 years later, they looked at the kids' earnings, which is earnings is this quaint term that economists use to describe how much money you make. Yes. And they, they like to call it how much you earn. Yes. And it turned out that the kids who in the treatment group had 42% higher earnings than the treat, kids in the control group. So the claim was, And the intervention was, the was intervention when they were four was, years old. When they're four years old, and the idea—I mean, there's there's some vague theory behind it that this is this is a time of life where if you know if, if the kids can be prepared, it can make a big difference. It's controversial. There's people who don't believe it. So they did this study, um, and they did the study, and I'll, we'll come back to the study. It's a great example. So they found an estimate of forty-two uh, percent, um, and it was statistically significant. So the statement goes as follows. Suppose that the treatment had no effect. So suppose that they were giving not even placebo, like just nothing. Like there was no difference between getting leaflets or whatever they're getting and getting the full treatment. Zero effect. There's still going to be randomness in the data because some kids are going to earn more than other kids as, as they grow older. So if you have no, if it's completely random, the treatment has zero effect whatsoever, not, not any effect at all, not a placebo, not nothing, then you'd expect some level of variation. And it turns out that if you see an effect with those data, if you see an effect as large as 42%, there's a less than 5% chance that you see an effect that large just by chance. So this encourages you to think that you found something that works. Right. It says that, well, here's an explanation. Here's, a, here's, two, here's two stories of the world. One is the treatment really works. It's helping these kids. Another story of the world is it's just random. It's just fluctuations in data. Statistical significance test, the p-value, rules out the hypothesis, seems to rule out the hypothesis that is just capitalizing on noise. Now, it doesn't really for reasons that we can get into, but that's, right, that's an example. And I can give you another example if you want. I want to stop with that one because I just want to, before we go, go any further, I just, want to, I just want to talk about my favorite, one of my favorite things that I dislike, and I, I want to let you react to it. So let's say I'm at a cocktail party. Someone says, I think we should spend more on preschool education. And I say, well, it might be good. I don't, you know, I don't know. It probably has some benefit. I guess it depends on what it costs and how you decide what's in that education. And then the, the, person, the other person says, well, well, studies show that preschool education has a 42% impact on wages, even 20 years later. And that's 42% is really a I'm sure the actual number is even more precise than 42. It's 42 point something. And now the burden of proof's on me. This is a scientific result. There was a peer-reviewed paper. And in fact, as you point out, and I did my homework before this interview, that one of the authors of that paper is Jim Heckman, who's got a Nobel Prize in economics. He's been a guest on Econ Talk to boot. And you're not gonna you're gonna tell me that that result isn't reliable. So there is a certain magic to statistical significance that people do invoke 
in policy discussions and debate? Yes, there is a magic. I think that your hypothetical person who talks to you in the cocktail party, I, I would not agree that the evidence is so strong. I wouldn't want to personalize it with respect to, to Jim Heckman. It's, it's, Neither would he's I. Doing, he's, he's doing standard. <laughs> well, he, what he's doing is he's doing standard practice. And, and so to, I, I wouldn't, I would hope that he could do better. Um, but this is um, kind of what every, everybody's doing. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that uh, conclusion? So why might one challenge that 42% result, which is, which, as you point out, only 132 observations, and this is where my biggest, one of my biggest aha moments came from reading your stuff, because I would have thought, wow, only 130 observations. That means you had to divide it in half, 65 and 65, roughly, I assume. Maybe people dropped out. Maybe you lost track of some people, but you have a small sample, and you still found st- – that's very noisy usually, very imprecise – and you still found statistical significance. That means, wow, if you'd had a big sample, you would have found an even more reliable effect. Um, yes, you're using what we call the that which does not kill my statistical significance makes it stronger fallacy. But we can talk yeah, about explain, that too. Explain. Um, well, to explain that, we need to probably do more background. So let's get to that. But, but let me say here that there are two, um, two problems with the claim. So the first problem is that it's not even in the even it's not true that if nothing were going on, there's less than a five percent chance that you'd see something so extreme. That's actually not correct. Actually, if nothing's going on, your chance of finding something quote statistically significant is actually much more than five percent because of what some psychology researchers refer to as researcher degrees of freedom or p-hacking, or what I call the garden of forking paths. Basically, um, there are many different analyses that you could do of any data set. And you kind of only need one that's statistically significant to get it to be publishable. It's a little bit like you have a lottery where there's a 1 in 20 chance of a winning ticket, but you get to keep buying lottery tickets until you win. So that's half of it. The other half is that the estimate, 42%, is an overestimate. In statistics jargon, it's a biased estimate. So when you report things that are statistically significant, by definition or by construction, a statistically significant estimate has to be large. In under typical calculations, it has to be at least two times two standard errors away from zero. And the standard error is something calculated based on the design. This particular study had maybe maybe had a standard error of about 20%. So 42% is two standard errors away from zero. Um, because it's selection bias, the only things that get, I wouldn't say the only things. Yeah, almost. Typically, well, people do publish studies where they say, hey, we shot something down. Yep. Okay, But when studies are reported as a success, they're almost always reported as statistically significant. So if you design a study with a small sample that's highly variable, as of course studies of kids and adults are, people are highly variable creatures. When you design a study that's highly variable, you will have a and small sample, you'll have a large standard error, which means any result that's possibly statistically significant has to be large. So it's you're using a statistical procedure, which A, has more than a 5% chance of giving you a positive finding, even if nothing's going on. And B, whether or not something is going on, the estimate is going to be overestimated. So that I don't believe that 42% number because of the procedure used to create it. Now, the people who did the study were aware of some of these issues, of course. In fact, aware of all of them, really. Uh, one of the ways they avoided – one of the ways they tried to keep the standard error, the imprecision of the estimate uh, that's inevitable with a small, finite sample is that they – the parents of these children were, were chosen to be somewhat similar, right? They were low-income parents. Now, low-income parents yield – High-income cho- income children sometimes and sometimes not, and as you point out, it's a lot of variation. That's just is nothing to do with the treatment effect. Everyone understands that. So when you say that the standard error is twenty percent, it's a way of saying in statistical jargon that of course there's going to be some. Even if we had all the children come from parents with the same income, literally the same, uh, the same within a few dollars, they'd still have variation as they grew up. 
because of random life events, skills, things you can't observe, things you can't control for. And so you're, as you point out, you're trying to say, well, but if it's 42%, that must be really big. And your point is that, well, it kind of had to be or it wouldn't be published. So what we're observing is a non-random sample of the results measuring this impact. Is that a good way to say it? Yes. And let me say, I I don't know that the standard error was exactly 20% in case anyone wants to look that up. I just yeah. know, no, no, I know that the least. 42% was statistically. So yeah. I'll tell you a few things about the, the study. That, so a lot of the, some of the kids went to other countries and I think they on average had higher incomes and the percentage who went to other countries was um, different for the treatment and control group. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like maybe part of the treatment is to encourage people to move or maybe going to another country is kind of a random thing that you might want to control for. So there's sort of a degree of freedom in the analysis right there. Another degree of freedom in the analysis is that they actually had four groups, not two groups, because if I'm remembering it correctly, they crossed the intervention with a... um, some dietary intervention, I think giving minerals. I, I can't remember the details, but I think they concluded that the dietary intervention didn't really seem to have an effect, so they averaged over that. But of course, had they had they found something that would have been reportable, the published paper actually, the preprint had 42%, and then the published paper, I think the estimate was more like 25%. So there's a lot, and I guess the standard error was lower too. So a lot depends on how you actually do the regression, which I'm sure you're aware of from your experience. Yeah. Now, go ahead. Well, let me just sort of say, it's not, I don't feel that it's not that any of their choices were wrong. So I don't think that what they did with the people who moved to other countries was necessarily a bad choice. You have to choose how to analyze it. I don't think it was necessarily a wrong thing to aggregate over the intervention that didn't seem to make a difference. Certainly, I don't think it's wrong to run a regression analysis. I've written a whole book about regression. It's not that any of the analyses are wrong. It's that when you do that, given that you kind of know the goal is to get a win, you are you are more likely to find statistical significance than you would have. And, and I I actually have written about this, that there's a term p-hacking, which is that people hack the data until they get p less than 0.05 and they can publish. And I don't really, I have no reason to think the authors of this paper were, quote, p-hacking. I don't think, it's not like a matter of people cheating. It's not a matter of like people like craftily trying to manipulate the system. These The guys who wrote this paper are have very secure careers. And if they didn't think the effect was large, they would have no motivation to exaggerate it. Um, but they're using statistical procedures which happen to be biased because of selection. And it's hard to avoid that. Just just like if you're a doctor and you don't blind yourself, you know, you could have all the goodwill in the world, um, but you're using a biased procedure and it's hard to correct for bias. No, it's a deep, really deep point. I, and I, I really like your distinction between p-hacking and garden of the forking paths. And I will come back to that phrase, garden of the forking paths, to make it a little clearer why that's the phrase that you use. But p-hacking has a negative connotation. It it sounds corrupt. It sounds like you've done something, as you said, either dishonest or fraudulent. And uh, tragically, it's not. It's just common research practice that if you run a result, you run an analysis and you don't get an interesting result, your natural inclination is to tinker. Well, let me try a different specification. What if I threw out the people who moved? What if I treated the people who moved to the Western Hemisphere different than people who moved to the Eastern Hemisphere? What if I th- – there's so many choices, and that's the garden of the forking pass. You have so many decision nodes that you have to inevitably make in these kind of analyses where there's a lot going on in the world's a complicated place that your natural inclination is, is to try different stuff. And, you know, the economics version of this is Ed Lemer's paper, let's take the con out of econometrics, where he basically says, when you're doing this, you're no longer doing a, the, the, you no longer have the situation where the classical statistical test of P less than 0.05 is, is the right one, because it's not a, a one-time thing. You've made all these other choices. Let me pick up on that, because this relates to this concept of the replication crisis. Um, before getting to that, let me also interject that. Ori Simonson and his colleagues are the psychologists who 
who coined the terms p-hacking and researcher degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. If you read their paper, they never say that p-hacking is cheating. I mean, they're they're pretty clear. So I I don't like the term p-hacking because I think it implies cheating, but I just want to say that the people who came up with the term were quite scrupulous. Um, I think they're actually nicer than I am. Um, They had a paper called, their, their paper from 2011 was called False Positive Psychology about how you can get false positives through p-hacking. I wrote something on the blog and I said how they use that to mock. There's a subfield of psychology called positive psychology, which is about right. how psychology can help you, yeah. which happens to be plagued with studies that are flawed. And I wrote that um, the, the title false positive psychology was a play on words. And Rory Simonson emailed me and said, no, they had no accident. meaning to, he just, <laughs> he's a nice guy, you know, so he wasn't doing that. Now, let me come back to, so there's something called a replication crisis in psychology yeah, that a lot of. We've interviewed Brian Nozick a couple of times on the program, so we're, okay. we're into it, but describe what it is, and it's yeah, very so important. People um, have done studies which are either published or appear completely successful, have good p-values. Later on, people try to replicate them, and the replications fail. And the question is, why does the replication fail? When a replication fails, it's natural to say, how does the new study differ from the old study? Actually, though, typically the main way the new and the old studies differ is that the new study is controlled, meaning you actually know ahead of time what you're going to look for, whereas the old study is uncontrolled. So you can do p-hacking on the old study, but not on the new study. And Nozick himself, he must have told you, he did a study, the so-called 50 stage 50 Shades of Grey, yeah. Shades of Grey. It was his own study that he was ready to publish with his collaborators, and they replicated it, and it didn't replicate. And they realized they had p-hacked without realizing. So let me get back to the early childhood intervention. So the the usual, one way you could handle this result is to say, it's an interesting study, great, okay, there's forking paths. We don't know if we believe this result, so let's replicate. So the trouble is that to replicate this would mean waiting another 25 years. Yeah. And what are you going to do like in the meantime? So replication is a lot easier in psychology than it is in economics or political science. We can't just like say, oh, I want to learn more about international relations. So let's start a few more wars and rip up some treaties and see what happens. Or let's wrap the economy. Let's create a couple more recessions and and create some discontinuities. (laughs) It doesn't, it might happen, but um, people aren't doing it on purpose. Well, it's hard to get. <laughs> it's hard to get a large number where a lot of the other things are constant. There's always the potential to say this time was different because this depression or this recession was started by the housing sector or the whatever. So it actually doesn't. It can't even be generalized with all those other ones. So yeah. So you you just can't you can't replicate. So it puts us in. What I'd like to get back to these examples. It puts us in a difficult position because on one hand, I think these. These claims are way overstated. On the other hand, you have to do something different. I'd like to share two more examples if there's a chance, but you tell me when's the best time. Well, I want to, I want to talk about uh, in the psychology literature, particularly this, this issue of priming uh, that was recently uh, talked about. But, but we can talk about lots of things. So what do you want to talk about? I wanted to give two so, – I wanted to give three examples. So the first example oh. was something that really matters, and there's a lot of belief that it that early childhood intervention should work, although the, the number 42% sounds a little high, but also where people actually care about how much it helps. It's, it's not enough to say, even if you could somehow prove beyond a shred of a doubt that it had a positive effect, you'd need to know how much yeah, of an effect it matters, is yeah. because it's always being compared to other potential uses of tax dollars sure. or individual dollars. So I want to bring up two other examples. So the second example is from a few years ago. There was a um, psychologist at Cornell University who did an experiment on Cornell students of ESP, and he oh, yeah. wrote a paper he founding that finding that these students could foretell the future. And it was one of these lab experiments. I don't remember the details, but they could click on something. And somehow you, it was one of these things where you could only know the right answer after you clicked on it. And he felt he claimed that they were predicting the future. And if you look carefully at the paper, oh, yeah, and the, the paper was- Andrew, I got to say, before you go on, when I saw the study, the articles on that, I, I really thought, I, I thought it was from The Onion, 
but it's actually a, evidently a, a real paper. Any one of these, by the way, strikes me as onion, an Onion article uh, that, that people named Dennis are more likely to be dentists. Um, I was going to get to that one. Yeah, well, go ahead. Go with the ESP first. So the early childhood intervention is certainly no Onion article. The ESP article – it was, you know, it was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, which is one of the top journals in the field. Now, when it came out, the take on it was that it was an impeccably done study. And sure, like people didn't, most, most people didn't believe it. I don't even think the people who, the editor of the journal believed it. They published it nonetheless. And why did they publish it? Part of it is like we're scientists and we don't want to be suppressing stuff just because we don't believe it. Right. But part of it was the, the take on it, which, which I disagree with, by the way. But at the time, the take on it was that this was an impeccably done study. It was high quality research. It had to be published because if you're publishing these other things, you have to publish this too. And there's something wrong. Like once it came out, like there's obviously something wrong that, that like, and what did they do wrong? It was like a big mystery. Um, <laughs> now, if you look, oh, and by the way, that the, the paper was featured, among other places, completely uncritically on the Freakonomics blog. Um, I'm, sure it and, made, I'm sure it made the front page of newspapers. It was, and in, the, it was in the front page of the news. Times. Yeah, so in the newspaper, they, they wrote, they were careful, they were more careful in the newspaper than Freakonomics, and they wrote something like, like people don't really believe it, but, you know, this is a yeah. conundrum. Yeah, if science. you look at the paper carefully, it has so many forking paths. It has so much p-hacking. Almost every paragraph in the results section, they try one thing, it doesn't work, they try something else. It's, it's, it's the opposite of a controlled study. That is, the experiment was controlled, they randomly assigned treatments, but then the analysis was completely uncontrolled. It's super clear that they had many more than 20 things they could have done for every section, for every experiment. It's not at all a surprise that they could have got statistical significance. And what's funny is that when it came out, a lot of people, like the journal editor, were like, oh, this is solid work. Well, that's what people do in psychology. This is a standard thing. But when you look at it carefully, it's, it's completely, it was terrible. Now, so, so in that example, I mean, what's interesting about that for me is that you say in the results, it was clear to you. But of course, many, in retrospect, in many published studies, this, the phrase I like is, we don't, to get, we don't get to be in the kitchen with the, with the statistician, the economist, the, the psychologist. We don't know what was accepted and rejected. So one of my favorites is you know, baseball players whose names start with K are more likely to strike out. Well, did you look at basketball players and see if their names start with A or more likely to have assists? Did you look at how many things did you look at? And if you don't tell me that, K is the scoring uh, letter yeah. for strikeout for those <laughs> listening at home or not from America or who don't follow baseball or who don't score. But K, keep track of the game via scorecard, but K is a shorthand uh, abbreviation for strikeout, and which, of course, is funny because some – I'm sure some athletes don't know that either, but the claim was that they're more likely to strike out. I don't know the full range of things that the authors tested for unless they give me what I've started to call the GoPro. Uh, you know, you wore the head cam and, and I got to see all your regressions and all your different specifications and all the assumptions you made about sample and who you excluded, what outliers. Now, sometimes you get some of that detail. Sometimes authors will so tell this is, you. This is like cops. Like, we, you know, researchers are going to have to wear the cap. So it's actually worse than that. Um, it's not just all the analyses you did. It's all the analysis you could have done. And so some people wrote a paper, and they had a statistical significant result, and I didn't believe it. And I gave all these reasons and I said how you can – it's the garden of forking paths. If you had seen other data, you would have done your – you could have done your analysis differently. And they were very indignant. And they said, how can you dismiss what we did based on and your assumption as me? Why, how can I dismiss what they did based on my assumption about what they would have done had the data been different? That seems super unfair. Like, it how is it that I come from the outside? And the answer is that – if you report a p-value in your paper, uh, probability that a result would have been more extreme had the da- had had the you know data come from random at random, your p-value is literally a statement about what you would have done had the data been different. So the burden is on you. So to get back to the person in the 
um, you know, who bugs you at the cocktail party, if someone says this is statistically significant, the p-value is less than 0.05, therefore, had the data been noise, we, it's very unlikely we would have seen this. They're making a statement saying, had the data looked different, we would have done the exact same analysis. They're making a statement about what they would have done. So the GoPro isn't even quite enough because my take on it is people navigate their data. So you see an interesting pattern and then some data and then you go test it. You know, it's not like the thing with the assists, the letter A or whatever, they, maybe they never did that. However, had the data been different, maybe they would have looked at something different. They would have been able to. And someone, someone I didn't read carefully in this, but someone did write a, a response to that article saying it turned out people with letter O struck out even more often. So what do you do with that? Uh, which is a different variation on that, uh, all the possible things you could have looked at. Well, they, they also found that, my favorite was that lawyers, they, they felt they looked at the number of lawyers named Laura yeah. and the number of dentists named Dennis. Yeah. And there were about twice as many lawyers named Laura and dentists named Dennis as you would expect if the names were just at random. And I believe this. So when twice I Twice as that, much. How could you? That's obviously not random. No, no. Twice, well, twice as much. Yeah, so twice as much as. First, twice as much as, as what? It's, it's not as ridiculous as you might think. So it goes like this. that Very few people are, are dentists. So if like 1% of the people named Dennis decide to become dentists, that would be enough to double the number of dentists named Dennis. Like, so it's like because it's a, a rare career choice. So it, in some way, it's not the most implausible story in the world. It, it actually takes only a small number of people to choose their career based on their name for it to completely do this to the statistics. But... And I bought it. I was writing about it. But then someone pointed out that people named Laura, the name Laura and Dennis were actually quite popular many years ago. Like, I guess when, when we were kids or even before then. And when the study was done, lawyer, the lawyers and dentists in the study were mostly middle-aged people. So, in fact, they hadn't corrected for the, the, age, um, the age distribution. Yeah. So there, there was something that they, they hadn't thought of. It was an uncontrolled study. So I bring up the ESP only because that's a case where like, it's, it's pretty plausible that it was just noise. And then when you look carefully at what they did, it's, it's pretty clear that they did just zillions of different analyses. So I want to bring up the priming example because I want to make sure we get to it. And then I want to let you do some psycholo- psychological analysis of my uh, psyche. Um, but the priming example is there was a very respected and, and incredibly highly cited paper that took a bunch of undergraduates, uh, put them in a room, asked them to form sentences with five different words. And that really wasn't the experiment. The real experiment was watching what they did when they left the room. And the five, one group got five words that were associated with the elderly, like Florida and bald and wrinkly and old, not old, but subtle, subtle, gray, gray, gray. I didn't, I don't remember. Uh, And then, and then one of the, and then the control group, the other group, got sort of regular words and it turned out that the people who got the old words like florida wrinkly old and red gray and bald they left the room more slowly because they've been primed to think about being old now none of them of course asked for a walker this is my bad joke about this kind of study it's like these are going to have to be somewhat subtle effects and yet they found a statistically significant result that when the replication attempt was tried was not found to be successful. They could not replicate uh, this result. Uh, and of course, there was a big argument back and forth between the original authors, whether they did it right. But my my view was always, this seems silly to me. And your point about small, and these are very small samples, I think it's 30 or 50 undergraduates, uh, where the speed of leaving the room is going to be highly noisy, meaning high standard error. So to find a statistically significant effect, you're going to find a big effect that to me is implausible, and that's but that's what they found, and then it didn't replicate. Oh, but it's worse than that because between the original study and the non-replication, there were maybe three hundred papers that cited the original paper. Uh, what were called conceptual replications. It appeared to be replicated. So someone would do a new study and they would test something slightly different, a different set of words, different conditions, and find like find a different pattern. Like you might, maybe there is another study where you do a certain kind of word and people end up walking faster, not slower. And it seemed to confirm the original result 
overwhelmingly, because these, as you say, hundreds of studies found the existence of priming once they knew to look for it. Why right, isn't a, that true? Why did why isn't priming real? Right, that's the problem. Is that well, of course, priming is real. Um, everything is is real at that level. <laughs> it's that it varies. So so different things. I think give you a couple of words, and a lot of people it won't prime you at all for anything. But depending on who you are, it might really tick you off. It might remind you that you have to go to the bathroom and you walk faster. There are all sorts of things it can do. The effect is highly variable. In fact, the concept of the effect is kind of meaningless because the, it's the nature of these kind of indirect stimuli to do different things to different people in different scenarios. So I think part of the problem is the theoretical framework. They have a, a sort of button pushing, take a pill model of the world. So this idea that like, oh, you push the button and then it makes people walk slower. That's very naive. Just as as, just treating it as psychological theory, it's, it's naive. Um, but it's a self-contained system. You do a study, and it's possible to get statistical significance through forking paths. Do another study. If it shows the same thing as the first study, that's great. If it, if it doesn't, you come up with a story why that isn't. Uh, then you, you come up with a story, and you find a pattern in data that itself is statistically significant. That's the second study. This can go on forever. There's, there's really no way of stopping it. The only way of stopping it, perhaps, is to do either through theoretical analyses of the sort that I do to explain why statistical significance is not so meaningful, or by just brute force running a replication. And running a replication is great. You can't really do that very often in political science and econ, but when you can do it, it sort of shuts people up, that's for sure. So in this, case, in this case, the dozens or hundreds of statistically significant results are priming didn't seem to be confirmed by the attempts to replicate them, as you point out, where you have one choice. We're going to look at these kind of words and see if people walk slower, as opposed to, oh, they walk faster. I guess that's because, and it's statistically significant, or I try a different set of words, or I try a different group. And so somebody blogged on this recently, and, and Daniel Kahneman, Nobel laureate, uh, commented on the blog, and apparently it actually was him. There's always some uncertainty about whether he actually commented because he had had a chapter in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, on priming, and he conceded, he had actually written about it a few years ago, but he conceded that these results are probably not reliable. And this was the shocking part for me, and I'll we'll link to this, because uh, it, I'm going to write about it. It's just stunning. He said, well, I just assumed that since they'd survived the peer review process, I have to accept them as scientific. And that was the most stunning Thing I, Besides the fact that he conceded that his chapter was probably not reliable, the fact that he also conceded that he had used the fact that they had survived the peer review process as sufficiently uh, sufficient to prove their scientific merit was also stunning to me. Now he's conceding, I think correctly, that peer review is not an uh, infallible scientific barometer, which is good. That's a good thing. But- it is a good thing. But that, it's, it's, but that brings it took us, to, us a while to realize that. But that brings us to my problem, which I want your help with. So now what? So I'm a skeptic. I tend to reject – I don't like psychology so much. I don't like these cutesy results that fill all these pop books by authors whose names we're not going to mention that use these really clever, contrarian, bizarre results, and, and but they're peer-reviewed and they're statistically significant. So I tend to make fun of all of them even before I've looked at the study. And that's not a good habit. And similarly in economics, the idea that we can control for these factors and measure, say, the multiplier, to come back to the priming effect, strikes me as foolish, silly, and unscientific. But don't I have a problem going too far? Can I now – I'm tempted to reject all of these findings in economics, epidemiology, social psychology because I say, oh, they're all p-hacking. It's the garden and the forking paths. There's a, It's the file drawer bias, et cetera, et cetera. Almost none of them replicate. Or do I say, well, I'm going to keep an open mind. Some of them might replicate. Some of them might be true. And if so, how do I decide which ones? Help me out, doctor. Um, I think we have to move away from the idea of which are true and which are false. So setting aside things like the ESP, which you know maybe. I'm not an expert on that topic, but there's certainly, a lot of, there's certainly a lot of people who take the reasonable view that there's nothing going on at all there. But generally, I, I think there are effects. I think early childhood intervention has effects on individual kids. And I think that priming people 
cause effects. But does it have consistent effects? The consistent effect of something like priming is just the average of all of the local effects. The same with early childhood intervention. The, the reported effect, the average treatment effect of early childhood intervention is the average of all the effects on individual kids. It'll be positive for some and negative for others. That's going to vary in size. So I don't think you should put yourself in the position of having to decide, does it work or not? I think everything works. Everything has an effect. Um, sometimes some of these things, maybe it doesn't matter. Uh, like the priming, I don't like, what are you supposed to do with the priming? So uh, let's, let's like, you're supposed to do, oh, well, maybe the priming will make a difference. So if you're, for example, if you're a company, you're advising a company and they're advertising. So would a certain prime help them sell more of a product. Or if you don't like the advertising, you know, you're working for a government agency and you're trying to prime people to have better behavior or you're trying to prime soldiers to be less afraid or, or whatever it is, that's going to be a specific context. And you'll want to, I think you want to study it in that specific context. I don't think we're going to learn much from some literature on people in a psychology lab seeing words on the screen. Well, let me take a slightly more important example. So I'm, although I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna argue that what you just said is unimportant, but it's relatively unimportant. It would be scary if, if the government or if corporations were secretly influencing us. I mean, an example of this would be, uh, uh, you know, when they flashed by, allegedly flashed by Coke so fast you couldn't see it during movies, and people rushed out supposedly at, at intermission and bought a lot of Coke without realizing that they'd seen these subliminal suggestions and i don't think it turned out i've seen the real actual study of that it turned out it really didn't work but somehow this became this scary thing and if it were true it would be scary uh but let's take let's take the minimum wage does an increase in the minimum wage affect uh employment job opportunities for low-skill workers a hugely important issue it's a big real question and there's a lot of smart people on both sides of this issue who disagree and who have empirical work to show that they're right and you're wrong, and, and each side feels smug that its studies are the good studies. And I reject your claim that I have to accept that it's true or not true. I mean, I'm not sure which, which – where do I go there? I don't know what well, to well, do. I think – okay. I mean, I do I'd know rather, what to okay. do. Excuse me. I do know what to do, which is I'm going to rely on something other than the latest statistical analysis because I know it's noisy and full of problems and has probably been p-hacked. I am going to – rely on basic economic logic, the incentives that I've seen work over and over and over again. And my level of empirical evidence that the minimum wage isn't good for low-income people is the fact that firms ship jobs overseas to save money. They change, they put in automation to save money. And I assume when you impose a minimum wage, they're going to find ways to save money there too. So I have, it's not a made-up religious view. I have evidence for it, but it's not statistical. So what do I do there? Okay, I'd rather not talk too much about the minimum wage because it That's has okay. a lot of technical knowledge that I'm not an expert on. Last time I took economics was in 11th grade. Um, I did get an A in the class, but still I wouldn't, I think you're wouldn't right. say I'm an expert on, on the minimum wage. But let's talk a little bit about that. So the first thing is I do think that having a minimum wage policy would have effects on a lot of people. Uh, and it will help some people and hurt other people. So I think the hypothesis that the minimum wage has zero effect is, is kind of silly. Of course, it's going to have an effect. And obviously, there are going to be people who get paid more and other people who aren't going to get hired. And so part of it is just quantitative. How much is the effect going to be? Um, who is it going to be helping and hurting? The other thing is I agree with you completely about the role of theory, that your, your theory has to help you understand it. I think it's possible to fill in the gaps a little bit. So to say you have a theory of, about what firms will do in response to the minimum wage, and you have evidence based on how firms have responded to the minimum wage in the past, but you can argue quite reasonably that the number of minimum wage changes is fairly small and they're idiosyncratic. So you have, yep. you have how firms have responded to many other stressors in the past. Yep. And so you have a theory. I think that one could build a statistical model incorporating that those data into your theory. So you would have a model that says that stressors have different effects. You characterize the stressors. You'd have some that are somehow more similar to minimum wage, like regulatory stressors versus other things which seem, you know, which are, are economic rather than political, how much, you know, when, when prices of raw materials change, so forth. It should be possible 
to fill in the steps, to connect from the theory to the empirics, and ultimately you do have to make a decision. Let me talk about early childhood, early childhood intervention, though, instead. Not that I know anything about that either, but that's an area where our theory is is weaker, right? Maybe. So I don't know. If we talk, okay, so if we talk about first, if we talk about theory of early childhood intervention, there's two theories out there. One theory is that this should help because there are certain deficits that kids have and you're directly targeting them. There's another theory which says that most things won't help much because people are already doing their best, right? So yeah. those are sort of, in some sense, those are your two theories that get things started. There's another there's one. A, there's another one. Yeah. Nature is stronger than nurture, but so it doesn't really matter. Nurture is overrated. You know, that's another strategy, yeah, another sure. theory. There's a, indeed. So there's a, another theory that, that these things won't have such large effects, that the deficits that people have are, are symptoms, not causes. And so reducing these deficits might not solve the problem. And yep. I mean, for that matter, you know, it's not even nature versus nurture. It's individual versus group. Yep. So if Jamaica is a poor country, um, you know, it's, it's not even might not have it. It's, it could be their environment that they yep. have a common environment. Sure. And so changing some aspect. So sure. So we have a, basically we have a bunch of theories going on. And if you want to understand them, you, you probably have to get a little closer to the theory um, in terms of what's measured. Now, in the meantime, you have decisions to make. So this the study that was done was in a more traditional, like take a pill, push a button. Like the experts came up with an intervention. Um, one way to frame this, I, I think it's very easy to be dismissive of experts, but one way to frame this in a, in a positive way, which I believe is, Imagine that this wasn't an experiment. Imagine there was just a fixed budget for early childhood intervention, like the government was going to spend X on it, and that was what the people wanted. If you have a fixed budget, you might as well do the best job. And of course, you should talk to education experts and economics experts and so forth. I wouldn't want just some non-expert to make it up. Like Experts have flaws, but presumably people who know about curricula and child development could do a better job. I, I would I'm assume. Not, I, we're gonna. I'm and, gonna let you assume that, but I'm gonna also argue that the evidence for that's very weak. And I'm. But but go ahead. Okay. Well, let me just say that. Uh, let me say that. I doubt that they're going to be worse. If, if, assuming that they don't have. If they don't have. There's motivation. There's fads. There's group. Sure. Think, okay. I'll, I'll, you know. take that. I'll, I'll accept that. Let's say that. Put it another way. So let let me. I'll accept your point and let me just step back and forget about who's doing it. You suppose you're doing it or some group is doing it. Suppose there is a mandate to do some level of early childhood, childhood intervention, just as there's a mandate to have public education in this country and so forth. Somehow you want to do a better job rather than a worse job. So however that's done, some approach is chosen. Go ahead. And so you're going to do that. Um, now, then there's a question of how effective this, this thing is going to be. And here, this just gets back to the statistics. So with 130 kids, it's going to be hard to detect much um, because the error is so high. The variation is so high. So it's going to be hard to use a study like this to make a decision. And one of the problems is that we are kind of conditioned to think that if you – we're conditioned to think that the point of social science is to get these definitive studies, these definitive experiments. And we're going to prove that the drug works or that the treatment works. And that's kind of a mistake. And partly because of the small sample, but not even just that. It's also because conditions change. What worked in Jamaica 25 years ago might not work in Jamaica now, let alone the yeah. United States right now. So, there's no substitute for theory. Um, I think there's no substitute for observational data. So economists use a lot of observational data. There's millions of kids who go to school and millions of kids who do preschool. So in some sense, you have to do that. You have to do the observational analysis. You have to have theory. Ultimately, decisions have to be made. I, I agree with your skepticism about your own skepticism. That is, being saying, I don't trust this 42% doesn't mean that you can say, I believe it's zero, right? Yeah. You want to be going, you, you don't know. And so you have to kind of triangulate. And I think one thing I like to say is that I think research should be more real world like, and the real world should be more research like, and economists are moving into this. So more and more people are doing field experiments rather than lab experiments. They're yep. doing big studies 
So they're trying to make research more realistic. But the flip side is that these studies are small and they have this noise problem. And it's taken people a while to realize this. So a lot of people felt that if you have a lab experiment, a field experiment, if you have a field experiment, you have identification because it's an experiment and you have um, external validity because it's in the field. So therefore you have a win. But actually, it's not the case. If it's too noisy a study and too small a study, the identification and the generalizability aren't enough. So the flip side is if your people are doing policy, they need to have good records. The organization should be keeping track of which kids are getting preschool and which kids aren't and how they're doing. And future statisticians and economists and sociologists should study these data. And yes, they're going to have arguments just like they have arguments about the minimum wage, but I think you, you have to kind of do your best on that. I mean, so it's, let me try a different approach. I'm not proud of this, but I, I'm going to push, push it and see whether, you, um, whether I can sell you at all on it, okay? So when you talk about field experience, I'm thinking about the deworming literature, which had a lot of enthusiasm for deworming. And there was a huge encouragement to give to charities that deworm poor children in Africa because a, a field experiment found that they did much better in all kinds of dimensions. And when they did it at a very large scale, it didn't work so well. Now there's a pushback from the people who did the first study, and I don't know where we are on that. As you point out, I think deworming is probably better than not deworming. Uh, the magnitude is what's its issue here and the variation across individuals. And, of course, we had a guest on Econ Talk that said we, we have too sterile an environment, and that's leading to many autoimmune problems. So even the question of whether it, it's good or not is maybe a little bit up in the air. But but here's the way I see it, and, and I, I don't. I don't like this way of seeing it, but I, I find myself increasingly drawn to this perspective, which is, you know, you, you're arguing, well, you know, it just, you've got to be more honest. You've got to look at a bigger sample. You've got to be more thorough. You've got to keep better records. You've got to be more skeptical. You've got to not oversell. You've got to be aware of the biases. And I agree with all that 100%. But wouldn't you, isn't it possible that the study of, of statistics, the way it's taught in a PhD program of statistics and the way it's taught in economics and econometrics, is it's just giving you a cudgel, a, a club, a stick with which to beat your intellectually inferior opponents? And all it really comes down to is ideology and gut instinct. So when you tell me about priming and I go, gee, that doesn't strike me as plausible, and I'm right, hey – my biases, my gut turned out to be better than the statistical analysis. And you tell me about the minimum wage and you know, we go back and forth with all these incredibly complex statistical analyses. And then it turns out maybe something will come to a consensus. I have no idea, but I'm tempted to just kind of rely on my gut feeling and to be honest about it as opposed to pretending as most I'm, I fear young economists do now. Oh, I just listen to the data. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't have uh, any preconceptions. I see what the data tell me, and I, I find that pers- I find that to be dangerous, to be honest. And I'd almost rather live in a world where people said, "I'm not going to pretend that my opinion is scientifically based," because there's not much science. There's a lot of pages in the in the appendix. There's a lot of Greek letters, but the truth is, it's mostly just my gut with a few facts. Um, I think it depends on on the context. I mean. I've certainly worked on a lot of problems where people change their views based on the data. And we, it's, it's always, there's always new data coming. So we, um, we estimated the effects of redistricting, you know, gerrymandering. And we estimate, we did a paper in 1994, which was based on data from the, um, from the, 60s and 70s, I think, or maybe the 70s and 80s. I'm, I'm, I'm not remembering now. I think it was the 60s and 70s. Anyway, we looked at a bunch of redistrictings, and we found that the effect of redistricting was largely to make elections more competitive, not less competitive. Now, we found that in the data, and that changed how people viewed things. Now, is that still the case? Maybe not. So redistricting has become much more advanced than it used to be. You can gerrymander like you couldn't gerrymander before. So our conclusions were time bound but in doing that we learned something new we we did an analysis of 
decision-making for radon gas, for radon in your house, which can give you cancer, and using a sort of technocratic approach or a statistical approach, we found that a targeted measurement and intervention, if applied nationally, could save billions of dollars without losing any lives. Um, I do work in toxicology and pharmacology where we have fairly specific models, I don't use statistical significance to make these decisions. So when I do these analysis, we do use prior information and we're very explicit about it, but it's, it's information. So I liked what you said. What you said about the minimum wage was you said you have a theory as to why you think it's counterproductive and you feel you have data and with care, they could be put together and, and put into a larger model. And sure, I don't, there's going to be political debates. I'm I'm not denying that. But I think there's a lot of room between, on one hand, things that are so politicized. And complex. And complex. (laughs) Well, not even the complex. But on some hand, there are some things that are so politicized that it's going to be very hard for people to judge. And you have to sort of rely on the political process. And on the other extreme, maybe the other extreme would be studies that are purely database looking at statistical significance like this ESP study that are, are just wrong. I think there's a lot of room in between. I don't think the fact that we're not going to use science to solve the issue of abortion or, or, or whatever, or maybe even you know the minimum wage will be difficult. I don't think that means that science and social science are, are useless. I think that it's all, it is part of the political process. I mean, you might as well say that like public health is useless because some people aren't going to quit smoking. Like, well, on the margin, it could still make a difference, right? And there's a lot of things that are maybe easier to quit. They're easier to easier for people well, to that, change. Things. Yeah, the problem with that, are, it's a good point. I take the point. It's a great point. Here's the problem with it. The problem with it is is that there are all these errors on the other side where we do something that's actually – we encourage people to – the equivalent of encouraging people to smoke because of – we've got empirical – so-called statistical scientific studies that show that X is good or Y is bad. I think oh, But that, that's why we should do better statistics. I mean, I, I think that – I don't think, right, someone wrote a paper where they looked at, I mean, yeah, there's lots of papers like cancer cure of the week, you know, everything causes cancer, everything prevents cancer, (laughs) right, and someone did a study and they found a lot, there have been published papers with a lot of food ingredients that were said to both cause cancer and cure cancer, and, you know, who knows, maybe they do, right, like, whatever, Um, right, and so I think that we do need to have better statistical analyses, and I think that people have to move away from statistical significance. I think that's misleading. People have to have an understanding that when they do a noisy study and they get a large effect, that that's not as meaningful as they think. But like within the context of doing that, I do, I do feel that we've learned, at least I feel like I've learned from statistical analyses. I've learned things that I couldn't have otherwise learned. Um, you know, a lot of like, I don't know, look at baseball, look at Bill James. Okay. He wasn't doing think about him all the time. Bill James, like, um, he learned a lot from data, from a combination of data, correct. data and theory, replicating, going back and checking on new data. Uh, I think if Bill James had been operating based on the principles of standard statistical methods in psychology, he would have discovered a lot less. So I'd like to move towards a Bill James world, even if that means that there are certainly still going to be places where people are making bad decisions. So for people who don't know, Bill James is, wrote the um, baseball abstract for a number of years and written many books using data to analyze baseball. And what he and he's the he's considered the founder of the sabermetric movement, which is the application of statistics to baseball, as opposed to people who follow their gut. And in, as it turns out. I'm an enormous Bill James fan, and I'm an enormous believer that data in baseball is more reliable than the naked eye, say, watching a player over even 30 or 40 games. That is a game like baseball where the effects are quite small, actually. Uh, it's important to use statistical analysis. I think the challenge is, is that baseball is very different from, say, the economy or the human body. Baseball is a controlled environment. So you can actually measure pretty accurately either through simulation or through actual data analysis, say whether trying to steal a base is a good idea. There are issues of selection bias. There's issues. It's not totally 100% straightforward. You can still do it badly. But you can actually learn about the probability of a stolen base leading to a run and actually 
get pretty good at measuring that. What I think we can't measure is the probability of a billion-dollar or trillion-dollar stimulus package in helping us recover from a recession. That's what I'm a little more skeptical about. Well, actually, a lot more. No, those those things are inherently much more theory-based. I mean, the baseball analogy would be uh, Bill James has suggested like reorganizing baseball in various ways. You know, so if right. you were to it's change great the role, example, it's, <laughs> who's to say? But you know, again, okay, sure. I mean, they're, they're, uh, I'm I'm not going to somehow defend if someone says, "Well, I have this statistically significant result, therefore you should do this in the economy." There's, um, but I think that there are a lot of intermediate steps. I've done a lot of work in political science, which is not as controlled as baseball. And it is sure. true, the more controlled the environment is, the more you can learn. It's easier to study U.S. presidential elections than it is to study primary elections. The general election is easier to study than the primary election because the general election is controlled and the primary election is uncontrolled, pretty much. So that the principle still still applies. And I, I think you know, you're right, but there's a lot of yeah. I don't, I don't, don't misunderstand the social and biological world that have a that have enough enough regularity that it seems like we can study them. Oh, I agree, and I agree with you 100. I don't want don't misunderstand me. I don't want my listeners to misunderstand me. And I think there's a temptation when you hear people like me to say, "Well, well I'm a scientist. I think we can do better." And you sound like you're not a scientist. You don't think we, we, these methods help at all, and you just want to use your gut. And that, of course, is a bad idea, also. So obviously, I'm really pushing for nuance away from the extreme. And the extreme is the one we're pretty much in, which is there's an enormous number of people, a few, I don't know, tens of thousands of economists, political scientists, psychologists, epidemiologists, and others who sit around all day and analyze data. There's an enormous proportion of that work that is both inaccurate and misleading. And the system that we currently use to decide who's doing, quote, good work, good science, is extremely flawed. So the lesson for me is high levels of skepticism about the, quote, latest paper that shows that broccoli cures cancer or causes it. And yet we're not so good at that. So I want to salute people like you who have reminded not journalists but practitioners that what they're doing is really not consistent sometimes with their probable code of conduct that they want to live by. And I think the replication project that Nozick and others are working on is God's work. It's a phenomenally important thing uh, to help improve this underlying process. But the fact is, is that the underlying incentives of the system are just not so conducive to truth. And I think the more we're aware of that, the more careful and correctly cautious we should be. I agree. And I would also say that, like, one... There's sort of when you say like, well, what we're doing isn't always as social scientists or epidemiologists or whatever isn't always what we'd want to do. And you could say there's sort of two directions. So one thing that people are very familiar with is the idea of moving towards the ideal. So, oh, if a p-value assumes that you've pre-registered that your analysis, then do a pre-registered analysis, right? Or if if this assumes this thing, make sure the assumptions are correct. So in economics, you get your identification. But there's another direction, which is like to, to move the mountain to you, which is to develop statistical methods that are actually closer to how we can actually learn. And so a lot of my work is not about saying, like my applied work is not about saying, well, I want to get my p-values correct, so let me make sure that I follow all the rules. It's the opposite. It's let me right. use the statistical methods that allow me to integrate theory with data more effectively and more openly. That's a fantastic uh, distinction. And I, I just want to mention you recently blogged about this, I think. I, I kind of stunned when I read this. Uh, you're, you're bringing out, I think, a new edition of your book with Jennifer Hill, which is called Data Analysis Using Regression of Multilevel Hierarchical Models. And you said, I think, that you're not going to use the phrase statistical significance in that new edition. Is that correct? Yeah, Jennifer made me take it out. I mean, she was right. Like, we had, we had stuff like, here's the result, and it's statistically significant. And I would say our book was quite moderate in how we used it. Like, we always emphasize that statistical significance doesn't mean it's true. It's just a description of the data. But she, Jennifer, convinced me that that's kind of silly. Like, why is it a description of the data? Why, why are we doing this? We shouldn't be. And so uh, we remo- we're removing all those. That's right. So I'm just going to close. I'm going to close with that, which stuns me. Um, and I, I would remind listeners who are not trained in statistics that significance in statistics 
as we made clear at the very beginning, we didn't make it clear enough in the very beginning. It's a very formal word. It's not what it means in the English language, which means important or relevant or noteworthy. Um, but I want to close with with an observation of of Adam Sifu, of another uh, former Econ Talk guest, who uh, in a book, a co-authored book called Medical Reversal, he made the observation that many, many, many multivariate analyses and studies, which show statistical significance of some new technique or some new um, device, when then put into a randomized control trial, do not hold up. Uh, it's another version of uh, of this kind of um, uh, failure to replicate. It's a particular version of it in the medical field. Extremely important because not only it involves life and death, and it's incredibly a large amount of money, but mostly life and death is why it's important. And when you see that, when you see that that so many of these results don't hold up when you actually can control for them, what does that tell you about the value of multivariate regression in these complex systems like the body, like the economy, et cetera? Do you want to say that we should be more nuanced? What are you going to say in your book without statistical significance? What's going to be your guidepost or way to – a person should trust these kind of results. Well, I don't do a lot of economics. When I do stuff in the human body, it's often pharmacology. We work with pharmaceutical companies, and there we're using nonlinear models. We're not really – well, it's not so much that we run a regression. We, we usually have a theory-based model of what's happening within the human body. Although we sometimes have regressions as part of those models, like you have a parameter that varies by person, and you might have a regression model on how that parameter varies by age. Exactly. And, race, yeah. yeah, et cetera. And so the, the story is that, that the regression model functions as a kind of smoother. So you have, I have data on a bunch of people, and these parameters are kind of hard to estimate, so I partially pull them towards this regression model. And if the regression model, the, the more accurate the regression model is, the more effective that sort of thing will be. So you're, you're talking about something a little different, which is to say, well, I have a causal question. What's the effect of something? We want to control for it by regressing. Uh, you might want to get my collaborator, Jennifer Hill, on the, your, your, the phone uh, to talk about that. She's much more of an expert on, on that particular topic. My guest today has been Andrew Gelman. Andrew, thanks for being part of EconTalk. No, pleasure to be here. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.